Okay, today, David on the map. Uh, David. David, we just encountered an incredible promise of God about the new covenant as we turn to Isaiah chapter 55 on Sunday. Um, And you can go back and listen to the sermon from Sunday, May the 2nd. And our scripture for, our primary scripture for May the 2nd, uh, which was, come as you are, go out new, new people in the new covenant. We're talking about the new covenant, the New Testament flowing from Isaiah 55 through Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 53 through 54 to 55. And in 55, we read these verses, which you can see I've highlighted at the beginning of the handout. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, a covenant eternal. Brit Olam. My steadfast, sure mercies, or steadfast love, plural, for, for whom? For, what does that say? For David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. And the peoples means all kinds of folks all around, right? Um, uh, not just to Israel, but to the peoples all around. A leader and commander for the peoples. Wait a minute. He's a leader and commander, not just for my people, but for the peoples. Do y'all see that? We're, we're opening up again and again in Isaiah with prophecies of the new covenant through which God will draw all the peoples to himself, connecting back with the promises to Abraham Okay, about all the peoples will be blessed through your seed, connecting again with these promises we're going to start looking at with David. And you see that right there live in front of you in Isaiah 55, verse 4. Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that that did not know you shall run to you. So we're not talking about Israel here. We're talking about a new people, a new nation. Y'all see that right there in Isaiah 55, 5. Because of the Lord your God... And of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So, as we seek to understand the new covenant and what God is saying through Isaiah, it is essential that we are aware of David and this promise and this covenant that God is bringing about through David. So, let's go back and start thinking about David. Last Wednesday, we did a brief overview of Moses and the covenant God brought through Moses. We'd already talked about Moses earlier. As I said last week, we're going to do short and sweet, really just some highlights on Moses and the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses at Sinai. We're moving on. We can go back to Moses later as we have time, but I think it's appropriate for us to go ahead and move on to David. We're going to spend a little bit more time with David than we did with Moses, honestly. Um, So, because David, as you can see, is so central to understanding the New Covenant, the New Testament, and um, the fact that with Isaiah, we see that God's covenant promises with Abraham and with David are actually preeminent over God's covenant uh, with Moses, per se, and through Moses with Israel. That is to say, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants are preeminent over the Mosaic covenant. And that gets um, resolved and brought forth as you move into the New Covenant. Again, when you open the New Covenant, when you open the New Testament, remember, testamentum is simply the Latin word for covenant, right? Okay, so... When you open the New Covenant, when you open the writing of the New Testament, the very first thing you're going to read, right, is that Jesus is the son of, does it say he's the son of Moses? No. It says he's the son of David, son of Abraham. Okay? So, you know, even a 
pretty cursory reading of the first verse in the entire uh, New Testament, the way it's canonically arranged, would alert you, oh, I obviously need to know a lot about David and Abraham if I'm going to understand Jesus and the New Covenant or the New Testament, right? So we're back to that again. We've talked about this before. Let's get into David. So speaking of Moses, though, and Torah, and um, remember Genesis is part of Torah too, but uh, the law, okay? Um, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. When you come to the land that I am, or Yahweh, your God, is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book or in a scroll a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to Fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So in the law, mediated through Moses to Israel. We have this specific provision that's set forth in Deuteronomy 17, both prophesying and saying, you're going to have a king, you're going to want a king. You're going to get there and you're going to see all the nations have a king that lead them, lead them into battle, help them feel like they're important, you know, be the boss man. Uh, You're going to want a king. The Lord will actually choose a king for you. But there's some... um, criteria that apply and law that applies to this king. Uh, He's not supposed to do what? He's not supposed to acquire a whole lot of horses. What does that mean? Does God dislike horses? No. Uh, That speaks obviously generally to he's not supposed to be a man of uh, who's acquiring all kinds of personal wealth for himself, but also specifically what the reference here would likely be is he's not supposed to be a guy who is putting his trust in chariots. Because if you have a lot of horses, you're going to want to have chariots, okay? That's the way the Egyptians do. And the Egyptians have really developed, you know, horse lines. So, by the way, he's going to be tempted to go down to Egypt to get really good horses and want to have chariots the way the other nations do. God is going to say in the Psalms, God God repeats this in his word, do not put your trust in chariots. Okay, y'all remember this, right? nor in the horse and the rider. Um, The ancient chariot was an amazing engineering feat and, uh, you know, armament feat. I mean, basically the way way you had, um, I think the Egyptians have two people on the chariot, two riders, and the Philistines have three. I believe I'm correct on that. I can go back and look at that. But it's basically like a machine it's basically like a machine gun yes jeff you can look it up um it's basically like a machine gun you know you're you're firing off arrows right as it turns and it's overwhelming force it's the tank of the ancient world 
Okay, so that's a side note on this horse thing. Uh, what about the wives? Obviously, God from the beginning designs us for a monogamous marriage, right? Does God give, does God say, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to give him five women. Does God do that at the start? He could have, right? If God wanted to. Would have kept Adam very busy. Okay, uh, But did God do that? No, the design pattern of our creation, right, is one man, one woman. Okay, So you've got that, obviously, at a basic level. What else, though? What about this many wives? Why would kings, why did ancient kings had many wives, usually? Well, one reason is they want to have a lot of sons, right? But is it necessarily good to have a whole lot of sons who are competing with each other to be the next king? No, okay, not necessarily. But beyond this, what's really the point of this? Well, the kings typically in the ancient world make alliances with other kings and people groups. And so they marry the daughters of other kings. And are other nations at this point faithful to God, faithful to the Lord? Is there one true God? So if the king marries, makes these political alliances, and marries um, women from other nations, what's going to happen religiously? The wives are going to bring in their idols, right, and their other religious practices. You see this played out in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, and even with Solomon, even before the split, right? This is going to play out. He brings in these wives from other nations, and what do men and husbands typically try to do? Do they, do they try to make their wives mad all the time, or do they try to keep their wives happy? They try to keep their wives happy, right? And so God knows the way this works out, even if the king says, no, you cannot have other gods, she's going to cry and things are going to happen. And she's going to, and, and by the way, if she has other gods and gets to bring her priest or priestesses and her other religions and idols in, how are her children, who are the future royal line of Israel, going to grow up? Are they going to be monotheistic and totally sold out to God? What do you think? No, right? Um, so you, <laughs> you got a big thing on the king there, right? Does everybody understand the ground rules here? Okay, so uh, you, obviously you're not supposed to have a bunch of wives. And on top of that, God's like already anticipating. It's not just, if you have a bunch of wives, they're not going to be all Israelite. They're going to be from all over the place. Jeff, you have a question. Yeah, two for Egypt and three for the Philistines, yes? Yes? Good, okay. So that is correct. Um, and that does bring up something that we're going to get to in a few minutes with the David period. Um, you're at the end of the Bronze Age and moving into the Iron Age as you get to this juncture with Saul. Well, before Saul, but definitely it's really hitting home hard with Saul and with David and with Solomon, you are now in the Iron Age, okay? And that makes a huge difference for technology and warfare and economics and power, okay? Um, so, um, yeah, um, and you get the pre-Iron Age chariots of Egypt and all of a sudden you get the Iron Age chariots and guess, guess who wins, by the way, if you're still trying to fight even with Bronze Age chariots versus Iron Age, you know, it's, it's like it's like trying to fight uh, nowadays with weaponry that would have done really well in World War One. Would you want to go against the People's Republic of China right now with doughboys and what we used in World War One? Do you think that would be a good military plan? No. Okay, so um, now the king is supposed to do something about God's word. What is the king supposed to do about God's word? He's supposed to write it down. 
What happens when you actually, have any of y'all ever written down the entire Bible? Let me ask you that. Okay, so in other words, we're not as dedicated as God probably wants us to be because God would probably like it if, you know, look, this month, write down one of the books of the Bible. We ought to try that, right? That would be a good thing. Uh, Now, in the ancient world, when you're writing it down, you're also saying it aloud, right? And that's just the way they operated. So, and you're supposed to meditate on it. Remember, in the ancient world, I told you all this before, in the ancient world, people read aloud. So they're not only thinking it, they're also hearing it, and they're saying it to themselves aloud. Uh, We became sophisticated at some point. I'm not sure when the transition was, but moving into the modern times, you know, you don't read aloud. I mean, that's considered rudimentary. That's like what little kids do. That may not be the great... It's good to be able to read silently in some situations, but it's not necessarily always the greatest game plan because how many people do I talk to that say... You know, I read something earlier, and I can't remember a single thing I read. You ever talk to anybody like that? Certainly would never happen to, certainly would never happen to one of you. Uh, so try this. If that is happening to you, try reading aloud. And then maybe not just reading aloud once, but saying it aloud a bunch of times. Do you think you might learn it better? Yes. And as we've said before, and you know this because on Sunday I had you all sing Isaiah 55, 12, you know, as our closing hymn. You learn things, right? Uh, we shall go out with joy. Okay, you, you learn things better when you say them aloud, and you learn them really better when you sing them, right? Okay, so um, anyway, but he's supposed to write this down and meditate on it day and night. Um, are most kings going to be inclined to do that? To most important people who have lots of stuff to do, what do they tell you about how much time they have for the Bible? I just don't have time, right? I'm too busy. You ever heard that from people before? Have you ever gotten into that sinful direction where it's like, I'm too busy, I have too much to do, so I don't have time to hear from God today? I mean, I'll say a little prayer to him because he probably needs to hear from me, but I don't really need to hear from him because I'm not going to spend much time in his word today because I'm just too busy, right? That's the way people are, right? And the more important people get... Now, do you think a king has a lot of stuff he can do all day? Yes. But God says, I want the king every single day to go back over some of this that he wrote down and is supposed to commit to memory, okay? And so, and what's the purpose of this? Not just so that he will know some words, but so that he will do what with respect to the Lord? What did it say? Is it supposed to say... He'll get everything he wants from God? Is that what it says? What, what will he do? What will be his posture before the Lord? Fear the Lord, right? We've talked about that before. The year of the reverence for the Lord, right? Because kings get really important. And they, um, how many like people of importance are subject to prideful self-centeredness? Virtually everybody is important, right? If, if you're the person who's the general, you start thinking, I'm the guy who makes the decisions, or the girl who makes the decisions. If I'm the surgeon, if I'm the CEO, if I'm the head teacher, if I'm the principal, if I run my business, I start thinking, by the way, if I'm the pastor, I can start thinking, you know what? I kind of make the decisions around here, don't I? Is that a good spiritual posture to be in? What do you think? How did it turn out for Adam and Eve to start making their own decisions? Did that work out really well for them? No. Okay. All right. So uh, now the the serpent, Satan, will tell you, come on, grow up. It's the best thing you can ever do to blow off God and run your life your own way. Satan really wants you to believe that, right? And most people pretty much buy into that most of the time, right? But, But God is saying, look, you have a king. This is, the, this is the regimen I want him to be on. All right, so that's the king thing. Any questions about that? Makes sense, right? Okay, now we're going to move on. Um, we really are brushing over um, a whole lot of ground here. I'll just remind you that after the Israelites uh, move into the promised land, you have the period of Judges and... Um, the period of Judges does not go well, but right before you get to the Judges, let me just give you the covenant reaffirmation 
at the time of Joshua. So Joshua gathers all the people um, together, all the, the, the tribes and the elders of the tribes of Israel at Shechem, and they have a covenant renewal a commitment in Joshua chapter 24. Because I've spent a little more time on Deuteronomy, I'm going to move on from that. We can come back to that later. But that is a renewal of the covenant that God mediated through Moses with Israel. Now they're in the promised land. And um, let me just read you a few verses of of this from from the, the core of it. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore... There's that word again, the year, right? The, uh, now, therefore, thank the Lord because he's a big Santa Claus. Is that what it says? Fear. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Right? Now, that word can mean worship, but it actually means everything you do. You're supposed to be serving the Lord, okay? Because remember, Israel and the Israelites are supposed to be the servant, the Eved of the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now notice, just go back to the whole Moses thing in the Exodus. Remember, God heard the cries of his people and remembered his covenant and his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can infer from what we just read here. Did God say, man, these Hebrews have been so faithful to me in slavery for hundreds of years down here in Egypt. They have only worshipped me. They've been so good. I'm going to go down there and rescue them because they're just such wonderful worshipers and servants of me. Is that what happened? No, as you just read, what did they do when they were in Egypt? They served the gods of the Egyptians. So were the Hebrews faithful in Egypt? No. I mean, God God brings them to a brief period of faithfulness through Moses. But I mean, by the way, the minute they get out in the, in the wilderness, what did we see happen again? They're unfaithful again, right? Okay, so this is totally an issue of grace, right, that was active here. And Joshua says, look, you're going to have to make a decision. You're in the promised land now. And just like Moses warned you, you're going to be prone to forget God because you're going to like your flat screen TVs and your SUVs and your ball games and your restaurants and you're going to say, we've got good flat screen TVs, and we've got good technology, and we've got nice houses, but look over there. The Philistines have better flat screen TVs, and by the way, they have better armaments and those chariots and stuff, so they can really defeat us as well as our enemies. We need to get more like them. And by the way, uh, they're teaching their kids about different gods and different religions. We probably need to catch up with the times because they're a lot more sophisticated than we are. So Joshua says, you're going to be tempted. Uh, you know, to go after the ways of the Amorites, or in other words, the Canaanites, uh, or, by the way, the Philistines. Uh, But I can tell you this, for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But you have to choose. Everybody has to choose. So that's that's the covenant renewal at Shechem. Now, you get into Judges, and there's some, there are various high points of faithfulness. But in general, what is the recurring refrain in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do we live in an age when everybody does what is right in their own eyes, pretty much? Yes. Okay, so the book of Judges would warrant our attention, but we're moving on. We're moving on to the very last verse of the book of Judges. Uh, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And there's something before the final repeat of the great refrain of the book of Judges that we need to notice here. In those days, what? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody see that? Judges 21, 25. Now, that there's no king in Israel is kind of a double entendre there. There's no man 
who's king, to pull the people together. But also, at a spiritual level, they're not following God as their king. Got me? <laughs> anyway, there is no king, and everybody does what's right in their own... Because the true king of Israel is supposed to be... Is it supposed to be a man? No, it's supposed to be God, right? Um, so, when you have earthly people who are kings, they're supposed to be under the real king, who is Jehovah, or Yahweh, God. Okay. Now, moving on um, to Ruth. During the period of the judges... And it's a really dark time, and, you know, the Philistines over in the southwest and various other groups, you know, are beating up on the Israelites, fighting with the Israelites. Um, and you get the emergence of a new story, though, in the book of Ruth during the time of Judges. Now, right now, let's go ahead and pull out and start putting some things on the map. Okay, so, putting things on the map. Get my copy of this one. Okay, most of you will have the handout that we did, the book, the booklet, the map booklet that we did in the early part of the year. Um, you can bring it sometime. I mean, I may start doing the maps more. Um, primarily, let's just look at what my handout is for tonight, which is the little four-pager that you have, right? Okay. So, you can see uh, this first map is a general map of um, kind of focused in on a part of Palestine, okay? Um, that part of the Levant. And, and notice that you see that that's kind of a brownish over on the Mediterranean coast there, and that's called Philistia, the land of the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? Well, look down below. You see these little maps? These sea peoples became very important, expansive, and successful in a couple hundred years before the time of Saul and David. And they spread out all over the Mediterranean. Okay? They became a threat and increasingly were a threat to the declining Egyptian empire of uh, the, uh, you know, the late uh, second millennium B.C., okay? So in that period of, you know, roughly speaking, 1200 to 1000 B.C., um, Egypt's in decline. The Hittite empire is in major freefall decline. And... Um, the old Babylonian and Mesopotamian powers are weak. And so what happens is, in that vacuum, a, the fairly significant players are a group of sea peoples. The Philistines, the Phoenicians, Mycenaeans, okay, over in, if you know Greek history, okay. Um, they become very significant. These are people who know how to use the sea. The Hebrew people don't really know how to use the sea at this point, okay? The sea peoples are very cosmopolitan and international. They're up, they're up to snuff with the modern times, okay? The, uh, the Israelites are not, and that's one of the things that's always going to be in play. So you get the Phoenicians up in what we would call Lebanon, and you have the Philistines in what we would call Gaza, all the way up to Ashdod and Ashkelon, basically all the way up to virtually uh, Joppa, okay, or Tel Aviv. Um, so uh, those are major players, and the big old empires have gone into increasingly free-fall decline, which is why God is going to give the opportunity for a small-scale but significant Israelite kingdom to arise under David and then to expand to its greatest height under David's son, Solomon. It's during that vacuum period continuing, okay? And like I said, what happens on the other side of that, within a couple hundred years, uh, you get the emergence of a, another major Mesopotamian power, the Assyrian Empire. 
and Egypt is kind of coming back, but the Assyrians are going to be stronger. That's going into the, the divided kingdom, the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and what God is prophesying through Isaiah. Okay, you're dealing with that. But back to where we are right now. So we're before all that. There's no big Assyrian empire. We don't have to be worried about them. We're worried about all these small little city-state coalitions or kingdoms that are around Israel. Okay, So you can see Philistia there. You can see Amalek down below, right? Including in the desert of Zin. Uh, you see Israel there. Over to the right of the Dead Sea, over to the east of the Dead Sea, you'll see Moab. Okay? Up, way up above there would be um, um, Ammon, and below there would be uh, Edom. Okay, but that's not on this map. We'll see some other maps. But y'all see the, the flow of the sea peoples in these little maps down below? Okay. Um, now, let's go over to page two of the handout, and you can see the judges of Israel, and Israel during the time of the judges. Uh, side note, just for important biblical information as well as uh, trivia, the word Palestine comes from Philistine. Okay, That's where that term comes from. So um, the judges of Israel, uh, you can see this is a map that gives you like where all the judges operated and this kind of grades them with the major judges like uh, Gideon and Deborah and Ehud, Samson, Othniel being underlined to tell you they're, they're big time judges. But you can see the judges um, are all over many of the main areas of, uh, of, of Israel. Y'all see that? Again, we're not doing a study of the judges. I'm just kind of laying this out for you. But when you start getting to um, the story of Ruth, all of a sudden, Judah is going to be very important. Now, you can see that there were major judges in other areas totally unrelated to Judah. They, I mean, they involved Judah. Uh, but all of a sudden, Judah becomes really important. Uh, notice that Jerusalem is in the tribal region, allocated region of Benjamin. Do y'all see that? But what the book of Judges tells us, can y'all see Jerusalem there? Okay. Okay. So what the book of Judges tells us is that the, um, the Benjamites failed to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Even though there was an early conquering or at least defeat of Jerusalem uh, by by the Judeans, uh, the, the Benjamites failed to get rid of the Jebusites. So that, that uh, Jerusalem there, do y'all see that? That's not actually under the control of Benjamin nor of Israel per se. It's still a city that is in the midst of Israel but is increasingly once again dominated and controlled by the Jebusites. You need to know that because that's going to be an important part of the David story and God's future for Israel with David, okay? Now, if you look down below that, everybody see that Jerusalem's there at the edge of the brown, right? If you look down below to Judah, everybody see Judah, um, the kind of light green colored area down below? Everybody with me? Okay. So uh, Judah, you can see, uh, well, let me just tell you this, has a significant city called Hebron, but also has a small town that is going to be important way out of proportion to its um, size, which is called Bethlehem or Beth Bethlehem or Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beit Lachem means house of bread. Uh, it's, we know it as Bethlehem. Y'all see that? It's a little bitty town. I mean, it's a little bitty town there. Uh, now, you'll notice that um, several of the main uh, Philistine city-states, I can just tell y'all this, that these are major Philistine city-states, are technically in the area 
of the tribal allotment of Judah, including Gaza. Do y'all see Gaza there on the coast? Everybody see Gaza there on the coast? And Ashkelon and Ashdod. Those are big cities. Those are of the uh, Philistine Pentapolis, the five main city kingdoms of the Philistines. Now that Gaza is in the same area where you've heard of Gaza City now, where occasionally like rockets are fired towards, okay, that's the same, that's, that's Gaza, okay. Uh, Gaza City, that's Gaza City is right there where Gaza is right there, okay. Um, and then you can see that um, the tribal allotment of Simeon is kind of landlocked or just enclosed within Judah. Y'all see that down there? Um, including Beersheba, okay? So uh, that's just some... So in any event, obviously with Ruth, all of a sudden what would really almost not warrant being on the map, this Bethlehem town becomes very important. Why is Bethlehem important in the Old Testament before you get to Jesus? Why is it going to be important? Who's going to be born there? David, right? So let's look at Ruth for a minute. Ruth... 122. Um, this Israelite Judean man named Elimelech, um, who, uh, who has this hilarious name in a sense because that name means um, um, my God is the king. Uh, he disobediently during uh, a drought, moves his family from Bethlehem, where his, he's supposed to be under the covenant, over to Moab. And what happens is all his boys marry, his boys, his two boys marry Moabite women, and then his boys die. And he dies. So all the males in the family die out. And you're left with his wife, Naomi, and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And one of those daughters-in-law is named Ruth. And Ruth is insistent that she's going to go back with Naomi to Judah, where Naomi comes from, now, who's now the really bitter, bitterly bereaved widow. And Ruth is insistent. Y'all remember this? And she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Um, and basically, may God strike me dead if I don't like live with you um, where you're going. So what happens is uh, Ruth... This Moabite woman follows Naomi back to Bethlehem, where, where her family comes from. And you can, just one verse here I have, uh, 122. So Naomi returned, in other words, to Bethlehem, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, what's the beginning of the barley harvest? Beginning of barley harvest is the time of a really big, it leads into a really big Jewish feast under the law. It's called Passover. You're supposed to catch that. Okay. So uh, I'm not spending time on that. I'm just telling you that. And they end up in Bethlehem. And the problem is there's no males. So they can't redeem the family property and they don't have any future and so they need a kinsman redeemer they need a kinsman redeemer and when Naomi who didn't want to have to fool with Ruth figures out well Ruth's coming with me she's like this is the way we'll get a kinsman redeemer she's still young and attractive you know um, and she's not dragging any children with her so the men won't be intimidated by that. Um, maybe this could work. And what happens is uh, this older man, who is a righteous man, 
named Boaz ends up, long story short, he ends up admiring Ruth and being touched that she is this young, attractive woman, you know, wants him. And he steps in to be the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. Okay, that's the story of Ruth. Now, when you get to the end of Ruth, again, remember, this is during the time of the judges, when everything's in chaos and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, you pick this up, as I said, it just, just pick it up at verse 13 of chapter 4, excuse me. So Boaz has married Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, which is a big deal. It's a big deal because she didn't have any children with her former Hebrew husband. Okay, so this is telling you God made this happen. Okay, God, God did a work here. Um, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, without a goel. Y'all see that? And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, what was considered really to be blessed is if you had seven sons, okay? And this is saying this girl that you brought back is better to you than having seven sons because all of a sudden now, Boaz has married her. He's restoring the family land and line, okay? And you've got a son that you can claim as your own, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So it's like the boy belongs to Naomi, okay? <laughs> gave birth to the boy. So there's all this interesting ancient stuff going on here, right? Um, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they're saying, even though it's Ruth's son, it's also Naomi's son. They called him Obed. Now, Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Does everybody see that? You understand why the book of Ruth is thrown in here. Otherwise, it's like, well, why, why do we get this weird story about, you know, this Moabite girl and this, you know, otherwise kind of minor village going on? Well, guess what? This is the line of the king whom God is going to establish, and it links all the way through um, Isaiah 55 and the prophecy there and the promise of a better David who is going to be the seed of David who's going to come in the line of David, and that's Jesus. That all just happened right in front of your eyes there with what's going on with this scripture, okay? And then just in case you missed it, in case we missed it, and everybody always says, why, why are all these genealogies in the Bible? It's so irrelevant and just waste my time. It's like, no, no, no. Remember, I've told y'all, the genealogies are really important. And if, God, if after telling you this little genealogical note, now God really wants you to focus on the genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Benadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you see that line picked back up in the New Testament, right? That's not by accident. That is not by accident that you get that over in the New Testament also, telling you about Jesus. Okay, all right. So that's, that's so y'all see on the map here, Bethlehem, um, and, and then if you go over to page three, you'll notice the Philistines at the time of David and Saul. And then, by the way, up there you can see Jerusalem has in parentheses another name. What's it called? Jebus, because it's the city of the Jebusites until David takes it. Remember what I told you about up there? Okay. So um, let's move on to... Samuel, and 
Samuel. Samuel starts opening up this story that we got led into by Ruth. Do y'all see why in at least the Protestant Bible, it makes sense for Ruth to flow directly into Samuel? See this, right? Okay. All right, so we go from Ruth and this high point of this redeemer. Um, Boaz is a redeemer, but also Obed is a redeemer. And who's ultimately the redeemer? Who made all this happen, by the way? Who, who put Boaz and Ruth together? Who allowed Ruth to have a child when earlier she couldn't have a child? And who gave Obed in the first place? God. So the real redeemer is God, just like the real king is God. Okay, so uh, 1 Samuel, we get, now we get another story. of yet another one of these women who cannot have children, um, Hannah, and uh, her husband has two wives, and Penina, you know, is, um, has lots of children, and she's just, she loves it because she's got all the children. And Hannah doesn't have any children, and she's miserable. Even though she's the favorite wife, um, should Elkanah, the Israelite man, have had, um, should he have had two wives under the law? Is he supposed to have two wives? But hey, you got to hedge your bets because sometimes they're infertile, and obviously the one he really liked is infertile, so we need to help God out here a little bit, right? And have two wives. Not good, right? <laughs> okay, so anyway, <laughs> Hannah, Hannah is miserable. She, you know, goes to, um, you know, at the time of the, of, the, of the feast at Shiloh, she's crying out to God to help her have a child. And Eli, who is the, the priest, uh, initially thinks she's crazy, drunk, all this kind of thing, and, you know, he ends up responding and, uh, God hears her and opens her womb, and she has a child named Shemuel or Sam, Samuel. God hears. That's what his name means. Okay. So uh, she has this boy, Samuel, and she has made a commitment that she's going to dedicate this boy to the service of the Lord. He's going to be Nazarite. He's going to be committed. He is um, Levitical. He's not a Kohen, he's not a line of Aaron specifically, but he is Levitical, and he ends up serving in the house of the Lord. But he's more than that, he's more than a Levitical priest, okay? He becomes judge, prophet, leader of Israel, setting up for the ultimate prophecy about an anointing of the promised king, okay? Uh, so that's, that's what we get going on with Samuel. Now, in the midst of all this happening, we find out that Eli, as is often the case, often the case, unfortunately, I mean, it, 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 it disturbs us and shakes our faith sometimes, uh, but what do you think it does to God when this happens? A lot of times people who are religious authorities actually are unfaithful to God. You know, they commit grave sin. They abuse their positions. And so it is with Eli's sons. And by implication, Eli is an unfaithful Israelite head of household, Israelite basically high priest. Okay? He's not faithful. So God brings down judgment on him. And we read this. It's a really significant prophecy um, in the midst of this in 1 Samuel 2, 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, man of God means this is a prophet, okay? This is somebody who has authority to speak for God. What's his name? What's the name of this man of God? We don't know. Isn't it interesting? There's some people in the history of the Lord's work who aren't even named, even if they did something in the Bible. They don't get a name. But this man of God is more faithful than Eli is. <laughs> We're reading all about Eli. Anyway, the man of God um, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. That's high prophecy language. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I 
choose him out of the tribe of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar and to burn incense and to wear the ephod before me. Um, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my uh, dwelling and honor your sons above me? See, he's more worried about keeping his sons happy than keeping God happy. Uh, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering to my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares. Notice, even if God says it's going to happen forever, it is conditional. Okay? There can be a divorce. There can be judgment. Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That's that famous verse. I quoted it, I think, in the last week's email. Okay? Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who do not honor me will go down. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that will be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. But then notice this, verse 35. This is the big prophecy here. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before or as the face of my Mashiach forever. You just got a big highlight. The Mashiach is prophesied in this book of Samuel. The Mashiach, the Messiah, is big. We just got that played out before us in this prophecy. And we've got some kind of prophecy about some kind of priestly person, whether it's somebody who serves the Messiah or possibly the Lepine could mean that it is the face of the anointed himself who is the ultimate high priest before God. That's a big prophecy right there. Verse 35. Um, and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's priest places uh, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Big prophecy there. We're going to have to pick up on David uh, next time. This is all just set up in the direction of David, uh, who is going to lead to the line of the Messiah. David himself, at one level, will be the anointed of the Lord, the Mashiach of the Lord. Solomon will be the Messiah of the Lord, anointed as the king of Israel. But it's going to be clear in the story that we need to look for a greater Messiah, a greater anointed one who's going to come. Pretty interesting, huh? Okay, so that's David. We'll get to the promises to David over the next couple of weeks and look at David. Good? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our opportunity to study your word. We pray for the McReynolds family and the Rackley families. Lord, be with them. Bring them comfort. Bring us, Lord, both comfort and compel us, inspire us, Lord, to be faithful unto you by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.